Whether it's a river runs through it or the oxbow incident, the last best place or legends of the fall, why is it that so many of the books that have defined the American West come from the same place? This is Breakfast in Montana. I'm Russell Rowland. And I'm Aaron Parrott. And we're going to spend the next half hour talking about two books from Montana, one from the past and one from the present, in an effort to understand what it is about this magical state that inspires so much incredible writing and so many memorable books. So pour yourself a good strong cup of coffee and spread some huckleberry jam on your toast. And welcome to Breakfast in Montana. Welcome to Breakfast in Montana. I'm Russell Rowland. And I'm Aaron Parrott. And we've got two fabulous poets that we're going to feature this episode. Tammy Holland was the Poet Laureate in for Montana about five years ago. We're going to talk about two of her collections, When We Wake in the Night and What Does Not Return. And we're also going to talk about Madeline DeFries and her collection from Copper Canyon called Blue Dusk, New and Selected Poems, 1951 to 2001. And, Great collection. Uh, it was beautiful. And she was uh, one of Tammy's first poetry teachers, so the connection is pretty pretty awesome there. And I think this might be the first nun that we've had on right. the program. <laughs> yeah. Or she was, was uh, a Catholic poetry. nun for 38 years. I didn't realize she was a nun that long. She left the order in 1973, so it's pretty amazing that she was a nun for that many years, and then half of her poetry collection was written after she left. So right, she really she lived, lived quite a life. 95. So yeah. So before we get to the books, uh, we have a couple of sponsors we need to acknowledge. One of them is the Isle of Books in Bozeman, and uh, those, um, Medley Antonioli and Susan Rostin, who are mother and daughter, are the owners of that store, and they actually also just bought Books and Books in Butte, which they are renaming Isle of Books and Books. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I love it. So they are uh, sponsoring us, which we really appreciate. And our... Our second sponsor is Chapter One Books in Hamilton, Montana. So thanks to those people. And we also have uh, received some donations from private listeners. So we want to thank them too. So thank you for tuning in. We're, this is our third year, isn't it? Yeah. Welcome, Tammy, to uh, Breakfast in Montana. Hi, Tammy. Hi. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate this. The best podcast in Montana about books of Montana people. Yeah, It has breakfast in the title. First of all, I wanted to ask you about growing up on the High Line, and, and especially, I think it's really fascinating that you became Poet Laureate and that your cousin Clyde is like one of the best painters in Montana and that you both grew up like, what, 30 miles apart? You were in Inverness and he was in... Was it Rudyard or? Rudyard, yeah. He grew up in Rudyard and outside of Rudyard some. I actually grew up about 20 miles south of Inverness. Oh. But yeah, we're first cousins. And my dad actually gave him some of his first painting lessons. when wow. he was. Yeah, we come from this Norwegian family. And 
So was there a lot of encouragement to do a creative things or did you guys just kind of were you the black sheep or <laughs> how did you both well, I, it was just assumed we would all grow up with music so I think all of us had piano lessons and uh, you know participated in school music and sang and that was just assumed I, and I know Clyde's parents just sang a lot together when they were like traveling and things like uh, that in my household, you know, my dad had a part of a dance band when he, in the 40s, and uh, he always played guitars. We always had jam sessions going on in our household, uh, and he was an artist. So, you know, part of what I did as a kid, I'd, I'd be like, here, Dad, I need you to draw something for me. And he'd make this pretty landscape that I could put on the front of my report uh, or something like that. And and so we just were always trying to do the same. I mean, it was just in a sort of expectation. But I think beyond that, I think they taught us how to see, you know. Mm -hmm. There was always talk, talk to us about, you know, the, the birds, watching the birds, looking at the way the light appeared in the landscape, paying attention to clouds. That was always a big thing. So I think beauty and the expression of beauty was just part of our world. So did you grow up on a ranch or what were you, what did your folks do out in the sticks like that? Yeah, they farmed. And you know, I spent a good deal of time just wandering the prairie. One thing I really love about it is that it's obviously lots of grass, lots of dry grass, but then there would be these gorgeous little flowers or there would be a little snake or there would be, you know, there are these moments that sort of emerge or, um, or we would roam some of the coolies by the Marias River, hoping to find uh, an agate or an arrowhead or a fossil or something like that. Mm -hmm. So I think all of those kinds of things are really good for the imagination. And at a young age, a pack of us, my cousins and neighbor kids, you know, we would go camping overnight at the river by ourselves. And probably the oldest of us was 12. Wow. Yeah, just a, it was just a different kind of world. Nobody ever said, how long are you going to be gone? Or, well, they would, they would say that. But, but, you know, like you could take off on your bike and they just figure you show up by dinner. Um, it was the same way when I was growing up. You know, nowadays it's so different. It's like yeah. kids don't get together unless there's a plan. and right. A you start know, I, time and a stop time and a location and I remember getting lost in Helena on my bike when I was, you know, six, seven years old and be in an unfamiliar neighborhood and I'd be like, Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Know, all alone. I know. There there was but it was like okay, right? Oh, it was yeah. You know, uh -huh. and then I don't know, I can see why the world has changed, but you know, at the same time it it was fun. Like you said, you learn to pay attention to what you're looking at and yeah. There's something about that independence of just wandering around and exploring on your own. Yeah. And and I remember just being so so taken with the sky, you know, if you happen to be out at sunset or this gorgeous half sphere because that you know, any of the mountains were distant and far away and uh, I would I would try to see it all. I wanted to see the entire sky. <laughs> um, so have you always written? Since I was about 12, I was fairly convinced I wanted to be a poet of, about that. Wow, time. so you were well, good. 
And specifically poetry, like you knew you were going to be a poet, not just a writer. Yeah, and I don't know why exactly. I mean, there's, it's not like there was necessarily a precedent for poetry in my family, but I did grow up with images and music. And my mother was a good writer. She wrote letters. She wrote, you know, people would praise her for the letters they received from her. And so, mm. yeah, somehow it all came together that way for me. And I, I, But I don't know exactly why I thought I was going to be a poet and then I became one. <laughs> and do you remember uh, poets that you that you liked when you were a kid like 12 seems pretty young were you reading poetry then yeah I don't know I I don't know I my parents recognized my interest and they bought me some Robert Frost oh that's Ooh. great but I don't know in particular did they buy you a poet starter kit too uh, <laughs> the, the little magnetic poetry i don't think those were invented yet no. <laughs> what a great invention though huh yeah yeah it is a great invention and you went to grad school for poetry right yes well i went to grad school first in missoula uh after my undergraduate degree there and then i went to grad school again in bennington uh, for an mfa i love that campus which one? The, the Bennington one. Yeah, I do too. Yeah, I went I to a weekend conference there once. It's, and just to let other people know what you're talking about, it's, it's huge, and there aren't many buildings. There's, right. There's a huge green in the middle that's just yeah, fabulous. There's a lake, and uh, there's a barn, and there are pathways. I used to uh, go roaming out into this really tall grass at night when the fireflies were flashing mm. summer i would go out as far as i could into this pitch darkness and so i could be alone and watch fireflies otherwise during the daytime i would pick strawberries out there mm. go to school too but you know <laughs> so was madeline at at missoula when you were there yeah she was one of my first poetry teachers oh, cool. i her you know, I was this 18-year-old who wanted to be a poet, and so I got put into Richard Hugo's class first quarter, and then Madeline's class second quarter, and after that, I ended up taking fiction classes from Bill Kittredge and Earl Gans. So, yes, that's where I met Madeline, but I didn't really know her then. I didn't really get to know her then. Uh, it was much later that we became friends when we were both going to the book festival in Missoula. So was she a nun when she taught or was the teaching later? It, she was not a nun anymore at that point. No, no. Yeah. I was just reading that she uh, requested to be released from that from while she yeah. was in grad school in Missoula. So what was she like? Oh, she was delightful. Um, you know, Really friendly, charming, in, really intelligent. I always, but we, we just would fall into conversation. She taught me about this method she used. I went to visit her at her place in Seattle. And she told me she used this method called quilting for her memoir. So she, she would think of some story, some memory, and she had this little box of square pieces of paper about the size that you would use 
to make a quilt and she said she'd write down details, put it back in the stack. And that was her method so that if she had time, she could pull something from her quilting pile and she could develop that element for her memoir. Mm. And I thought that was great. So she wasn't working in a linear fashion at all. She was working with this kind of segmentation, but it was manageable in the context of a busy life because she always taught, you know, uh, I noticed in some of the biographical statements I read, it doesn't really mention that she was still teaching at Pacific university. Right. Into her eighties. Yeah. Well into that. I remember going for a walk with her in Missoula too. She always, she wore two watches when she traveled. So one set for Seattle time and one set for whatever time she was. Awesome. She was in. Um, Um, Do you know what, so did, I don't know very much about her at all. Did, did she leave the order because she was uh, pursuing a writing career or? Well, I think she left for personal reasons. And okay. I think that. Uh, like a loss of faith or? No, I don't think it was that. Okay. In fact, I gave her a ride to church. She was running late and I, I dropped her off at church in Missoula because she always went to church on schedule. No, I, yeah. I don't think it was personal. That poem, Still Life. Mm. I love that poem. Um, yeah, I think that probably gives you some strong hints. And I, I can't remember how much she, you know, revealed about why it was that she left. But I think it was a relationship that ended up ultimately not working out. But mm. it was part of the motivation. This collection, I, I'm, I'm so glad you chose her because I, yeah. I'm not familiar with her at all. Me either, but I've heard people talk about her for years and just Have never you? got around to her. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this, this collection blew me away. I think it's amazing. Yeah, it is. I, I think she means a lot to a lot of perhaps women in particular. At that time, when I was in Missoula, and quite a few of us have talked about it after the fact. I mean, there really were not very many women on the faculty. Lois Welch, uh, Beverly Chin in English education, and, and Madeline DeFries. And they were role models. When were you there? Late 40s? 70s, early 80s. <laughs> so I'm sorry, what was that? Late 70s, early 80s. Okay. Yeah, I missed Hugo. I got there in 86. But I was a philosophy major anyway, so I, I didn't take oh, any English yeah. classes. So we wanted to talk to you about two of your collections, When We Wake in the Night and What Does Not Return. Do you want to tell us anything about those collections and how they came about? <laughs> well, I think... My method generally is to just, you know, write and see where things go. Mm-hmm. Not like I start with a plan necessarily. Right. And, um, and so in that sense, both of them are just, you know, the, the collections that, I don't know, some, it, they were, uh, they began to take on this identity and come together. I think what characterizes what does not return is that it probably centers around this mother figure, yeah. And, every, and that's sort of a re- recurring motif in the piece, the idea of loss, caretaking, grief, but also what comes on the other side of that as well. And I think for all of my work, the natural world plays a really big role. Attention to the details of the natural world, which I probably learned at a very early age. And so I think that's what characterizes the last book. And when we wake in the night, probably 
it has more to do with you know raising children that that flurry of midlife but in the center of that also is this multi-voice piece this sequence that focuses on a, a a suicide in a jail and actually that was the thing that was probably most difficult about that book in that you know where do you put that that it's not going to take up all the oxygen so I had all kinds of different arrangements for that book and finally Melissa Kwasney was the person who helped me place things where they were and in fact she helped me with the second one in the same way she's really masterful that's what I picked up when I read it was the family stuff and raising children and all the poems that I marked you know that I wanted to take a look at and maybe have you read one if you're willing sure of course we're all uh you know they ended up all being about raising kids yeah there was a lot of that going on (laughs) (laughs) so you have two sons is that right yeah and And they're they're all grown up now right yeah yeah they're all grown up um yeah but but we were in the in the midst of it at that point i think yeah i think when i met you one of them was a football star in high school is that right yeah yeah Yeah. and that same one is a very talented violinist yes i love that (laughs) yeah nice contrast multifaceted person yeah (laughs) Well, speaking of them, would you read uh, Joyful Noise? Oh, sure. That's on page 40 of uh, When We Wake in the Night. That's kind of a silly little poem, isn't it? But I liked it a lot. Yeah. I, maybe because I have a 10-year-old, so this resonated Oh, see, there with you me. go. Joyful Noise. When they are gone, I miss them. Nearly grown boys, the two of them snapping towels in the kitchen, throwing potatoes, Someday I won't stand between you, I say, as they lunge in a mock fight. They tell me they may lock me in another room before then, laughing, laughing. They crash against each other in the hall, the kitchen. The pans are hot, I say. They hardly need me. They set the table in a mad dance. I am the mashed potato man. Yes, I am the mashed potato man. One of them skips with pan and masher. The other bangs spoons on his head. We were not averse to roughhousing. I I don't know. I sort of take delight in that, you know, as long as it's safe enough, I guess. (laughs) No, it was a real visual thing for me. I could like see this all happening. Yeah, I can still see it. Actually, I, I mean, in some ways, all I did was take dictation. <laughs> Do you want to read the um, swim lessons, too? That's another one that's an okay. nice yeah. example of what you're talking about. Swim lessons. Later in bed, you will remember the hard words, the crunch of snow as wheels pass into the middle lane, the crescendo of anger at the light, silence the rest of the way to swim lessons. Arguing over whether he will go, he's going, whether he will go again. He is 11, big enough to know what he wants, and you are 40, not old enough to know what to do. At the pool, his thin new body slips into a world that does not include you, and you watch, holding his coat. That one's a little sadder, but it's also, 
I think that's part of the tension of raising children. You know, I'm happy when they feel the right to express themselves. I, I just think parenting is not easy. You know, it's supposed to be the old, older person who has the, can make the decisions. But I, I think we feel our way through it sometimes. I mean, every situation is just a little different. And No, and I think you really captured that sense of, uh, you know, realizing that at a certain age, they have a mind of their own. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I love that line about he is 11, big enough to know what he wants, and you are 40, not old enough to know what to do. That's yeah, that, that sums it up pretty well. <laughs> yeah. Um, just out of curiosity, are your kids writers? They both like to write. Yes, we'll see what they <laughs> how they feel about it over time. Well, so the suicide you mentioned was that? I, I know you taught at the jail for a while. Was that? No, it, it wasn't part of that. Okay. I I taught at the women's prison for about five years, but not like permanently there. I was yeah. Coming a week or something but now I got I was on a jury oh okay which is a which is much different than a regular jury um the jury can ask questions there is a kind of casual uh nature in the whole proceeding and and it's grim because you end up hearing the details over and over and over and over and uh, and I fictionalized uh quite a lot about that. But I also, I mean, I came home from that experience, which only took a few hours, just sort of, I don't know, not knowing what to do about it. I mean, all of this talking about this person who's gone and couldn't explain and trying to work through the evidence. And, you know, and so I put together this piece that had many voices, you know, the, the parents of that person did not speak at that hearing, but I imagined them because I was a parent. So I imagined what it must have been like for them and also, you know, the anger, the frustration, the what could I have done, all those things that you feel when something terrible happens, but also some of the voices of those who testify. And even uh, I imagined the sort of the voice of the state, you know, I don't know if you've ever received a summons to be on a jury, but it's a very official kind of voice and I tried to capture some of that too and 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 the process which is not really about compassion it's really about sort of tying up loose ends and deciding if there's anything else to look into and kind of getting the paperwork done that's interesting I I was on a mock jury once and the case was a car accident that happened between here and Red Lodge and this one car had veered over into the other lane and, and the lady coming the other way was an older woman and she was killed. And then anyway, yeah, I, I was really surprised how emotionally involved I got with this, yes. this whole story. I mean, it had had such a dramatic impact on both of these families and, you know, and none of the people that were involved were even there, but, the story was just so powerful. It was, yeah, so I know what you mean. Yeah, I think that's it. There's this, um, and, and maybe because, you know, maybe because we're writers too, but you just get caught up in that story and trying mm-hmm. to understand it and the motivation or, you know, all the what ifs and, and that. Yeah. 
I, I think that was part of why I would find myself right after that, you know, I was, I was writing in the middle of the night. I'd wake up, I'd start Ooh. thinking about it and I would get up, you know, I was just trying to get to the core of it somehow. Ooh. So speaking of that, that nice little segue to the, to the collection about, uh, you, you mentioned the older woman, but your mom was uh, pretty much the, centerpiece of the second collection right I mean you were dealing with your mom's dementia and yeah well and you know you know how important mothers are and yeah you know and then you watch that decline and and dementia is a very strange and and in some ways interesting phenomenon you know it for example her imagination would fill in the gaps that her memory left and right. uh, you know and I was fooled more than once thinking that things were just fine when she was filling filling in with she was imagining yeah that and so that whole experience was um certainly central it's what the whole first section of the book is about but the image of this mother figure keeps cropping up yeah it's a kind of motif i think in the book yeah i liked what you said about that a lot of it is about dealing with the uh how you look at everything differently afterward. Yeah. So do you want to read a couple of selections sure. from that? Sure. Um, which ones do you want? You well, the title poem was one of the ones that I really moved by. This is called um, What Does Not Return. And it's actually, this one is set on that ferry ride from Boston to Provincetown. What does not return? I took an oyster, a hinged wonder from the small bay because of its glistening apricot surface, sculpted like the half shells in the sand, then kept it admiring its beauty, noting that without water, it lost part of its shine. After a day or two, I noticed darkness beneath its iridescent shell. Dead, I supposed. Then I felt a responsibility, at least, to put it where it belonged. I took it in my purse and planned to return it to water, but every time I forgot. Thinking the open shells on the shore would be my reminder, I became so enamored with their fragments catching the sun I had to walk away from so much light. In the ferry, going back to the mainland, I saw my first whale and couldn't stay in my seat, thrilled at the arc of its slick blackness emerging, then immersing. I thought, here I am again, failing to put to rest the past, the thing shriveling in the interior, while this creature, already a memory, overtakes what cannot be undone. Now, that's one of the things I've, I love about your work, Tammy, is that you present things as complicated and like unresolvable in a way, I think, you know, which is how I see the world. <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> nothing is ever wrapped up in a pretty package like we would like to think it should be in. And I think your poetry really reflects that in a beautiful way. So, thank you for that. Thank you.
what light remains? What is left streams through late autumn haze and windows to warm patches of carpet, brightening and lengthening the space near the rocker. Her feet touch down, square to the frame. What light remains you see in her eyes, her heavy lids, the bare expression of thin lips. If only the words could ready themselves, if only the gesture could unfold, if only the body could launch. Hmm. That's just amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of my favorite too. Oh, thank All you. those things that sort of disappear <laughs> and we watch, it's so hard to watch. Yeah, they do. I mean, it, and it's like the body sort of remembers and then it can't mm -hmm. make it through the steps, you know, so you see that tentativeness. It happened to me this morning. <laughs> <laughs> so... What was your uh, what was your experience like as poet laureate? What, what year was that? It's been about five years ago now, probably. Was, yeah, I think it was. I think 2015 was when I finished up. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I got to travel all over the state to meet people and uh, meet with a lot of kids. Lots of classroom activity. Um, doing you know little writing workshops in classes. I got to visit small country schools and much larger schools. I was at the county fair in Hamilton. Wow. Did you notice a difference in the way that kids responded to you in the small towns? Were they more like, oh, a celebrity kind of deal than the bigger? No. Family? No, not at all? <laughs> no, kids are not like that. <laughs> no, but we had fun. Uh, we had a lot of fun, and I would often have, have the kids, uh, I have this little animal prompt that I do called Close Encounters with Animals, and uh, ask them to tell their stories, and oh my gosh, some of the stories that mm. we got, um, you know, coming face, kids coming face to face with this bear, or see, seeing deer outside the schoolhouse door, and just really fun stories. Yeah, it, it was it was a good time, and you know, being able to you know sh share reading space with people that I have admired for years in Montana, that was that was quite remarkable. Mm. Um, sort of along this same line, can I ask you the you know we've talked about Richard Hugo a lot on this program, but you studied under both Hugo and Madeline de Vries, so. Could you say a little bit more about their different teaching styles or did you connect with one more than the other? Well, I think I was terrified by both of them. Remember, I was just 18. Mm. <laughs> and so I went into Hugo's class. Uh, it was full, right? This class was packed. It was just an introductory poetry class. Most people were uh, a few years older than I was, much more experienced, and, you know, strong voices. I, I think I was so terrified. I was writing this cryptic, odd stuff. And there was a point at which he gave me quite a bit of guff over, over what I was writing, which was also terrifying. Mm -hmm. Then he did this 
exercise with the whole class. Because in retrospect, as I think of it as a teacher, probably there was more, you know, I was not the only one struggling in there. Um, it just felt like that since I was that age. He gave us the exercise, and he documents this, this exercise in uh, Chapter 3 of Triggering Town. And it's an exercise he got from Retke, where we do this large map of uh, words on the board, coming up primarily with verbs and nouns, some adjectives. And then we have these rules about writing a poem. Three stanzas. When I do this exercise with my students, I always do seven to 11 syllables, no rhyming, doesn't have to make sense. Uh, each stanza is seven lines. And uh, so... It was sort of like a game, and I wrote something that was, you know, a little bit nutty. And but then he drew, he he praised me for that. And the whole point of that exercise is that it gets people out of that self-conscious mode and in touch with something less conscious, more creative. So that's what I remember most about that class. And 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 you know, a lot of the things that I think everybody was smoking back in those days. I don't know. I mean, you know. Every, Thing that you uh, end up reading about when people tell stories about being in those classes. Um, and then Madeline sort of ran a tighter ship. Mm. That's what I remember most. I don't remember assignments in particular. I remember people brought work in. What I, what I remember actually from that class is that uh, somebody sort of jokingly signed his work, W.B. Yates, and boy, that made her mad. <laughs> she wow. really went after him on that. That's what I remember perhaps most. Yeah. T tell us what you loved about her work. Her work, I think, is um, complex. I don't think it provides easy answers. Uh, I think it's challenging and uh, precise. I like the... Um, the allusions, the, you know, the way she kind of moves in and out of bodies of knowledge, some of those religious, right? Mm -hmm. um, she's working with the idea of God sometimes. The idea also of the convent is a kind of cage, but Marilyn Monroe also in a kind oh, of cage. Oh, God, yeah, I love that. And, yeah, um, yeah I, I like all of those things about her work. I, mm. I just admire her a lot. You know, having never read her, um, and maybe this is an odd connection to make, but it really reminded me of Wallace Stevens. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm sure that she was really knowledgeable about Stevens. Yeah. Sure she was. But, you know, the whole religious element and well, he was a lot of the images. He's an atheist. Well, I know, but he, but he talks about it a lot. Well, it's yeah. Yeah, Bill Moyers yeah. was uh, interviewing um, Rushdie one time, and Rushdie is an atheist, of course, and so they're talking about, they're having this incredible discussion about theology, and Bill Moyers says, you know, for an atheist, you think a lot about religion, and <laughs> Rushdie said, oh, atheists think about it way more than other people do. <laughs> that was fascinating. Maybe that's part of why I love Madeline's work, too, because I really love Stephen's work. Yeah, and I was surprised when you said that, you know, she remained religious all her life because mm -hmm. it, it is ambiguous in here, I, th I think. Well, like I mentioned my email, um, I was, uh, I loved how she she kind of 
goes all out with how she felt about that whole experience. I mean, she's there's some anger there. Sure. Yeah. Well, she doesn't go for any easy platitudes, right? Mm. She, you know, she's well aware of criticisms, you know, of the complexity of this whole situation. You know, like on Whit Sunday Office, there's this great section in here where she says, uh, well, somebody said, in choir I stand, one with my sisters now at journey's end, and hear antiphonal, the chant break like a bell, leap through the chapel vault, spiral and somersault, and here and there a crack to make the music sweeter for a happy fault. And I know that happy fault is Felix Culpa, the, you know, the happy sin that got people on their way to God. So I don't know, just the way she phrases everything. I guess what I'm saying is there's a lot of material there for the atheist also. Oh, I I imagine so. Yeah, I don't, I (laughs) imagine. Not that I'm saying she was an atheist. No, but she explored the complexity of it. And the, yeah. the, uh, the inherent conflict, right? Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think she's, she's a global thinker, right? Mm. She, she sees broadly. She understands intricacies. So yeah. speaking of that, the Marilyn Monroe poem, I'm just going to read it. Yeah. I just think it's, yeah. so it's called To Marilyn Monroe, whose favorite color was white. When you wriggled onto the silver screen, Marilyn, honey blonde or platinum, I was a nun. I found you too late in your satin sleep. Now, three decades past, I grieve from that ancient cloister, the alabaster body, my beautiful buried sister. Convent movies had to be clean as bleach. Even your titles went wrong. (laughs) All about Eve. The seven-year itch, the asphalt jungle, some like it hot, how to marry a millionaire. Sex was a bullet I dodged that shot on the subway grate. Skirts lifted to seventh heaven. You scared me, all right, and you scared your jealous husband. Yet Joe was your friend in the end, as I hope to be. Bride at 16 like you, given another name. I was cast with the world's invisible millionaire. Wow. We didn't know who we were, Norma Jean, too young to care. Even now I imagine you posed a pinup everywhere women who did it for $50. I resent the photographer smirking away with the loot, the generous milky breasts and bottom pout of a wounded child. Too bad, the bad life fate guaranteed you, dashing absent father, unmarried mother who had to be locked away. Say cheese, Marilyn, open those pearly gates, come back with me to my former marmorial splendor, the lily pad I escaped that was never my passion. Ivory walls, skulls in our our heads all day, snowy sheets and colorless towels, chaste linens framing the parchment faces. It was color I missed most of all, white sister. I hated the pallor. I wanted you to play this part over. I want to barge in as your crazy mother, stealing the scene. Capsules washed down the drain in a lethal river. The beauty startled awake in the last act from that white sleep history promised. 
Jesus. That is so good. That really is an awesome poem. It is awesome. She would read that one regularly when she did. Did she? And she really loved Marilyn Monroe. So what was she like as a reader? Is I suppose there's probably something on YouTube we could find. Yeah, I think you could. That just covers so much. Oh, the, the, like the it sort of takes on the whole cultural phenomenon of creating Marilyn Monroe as a pinup girl and, you know, continuing. Yeah, and the parallels she makes between the two of them making these commitments to fabulous. So you have a collection in the works, I assume? Yeah, there are poems. And we'll see how they're coming together. I'm beginning to see connections and all of that. And uh, I don't have predictions in terms of when that's going to be done. <laughs> but yeah, they're coming. I just has, need the, has the pandemic been uh, giving you time to write more? In some ways, yes. I think the semester kind of ate up my time but now I'm going into a few weeks where I, I'm not having to teach and that's, I'll be turning towards the poems more, but yeah, generally, yes. I mean, here we are. Right. And uh, <laughs> yeah. there is plenty of time. I don't find myself particularly speechless. So I think it will come together. Yeah. Good. Thanks, Tammy. <laughs> and thanks for putting the spark under us to, actually read Madeline DeFries. It was great. I'm so glad you enjoyed her work. Yeah. It's been, it's been on my radar for years and it's just, you know, one of those things I never got to. So this was awesome. Good. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Breakfast in Montana. Breakfast in Montana is produced by me, Russell Rowland, and the music is written and performed by my co-host, Aaron Parrott. This episode, we talked with former Montana Poet Laureate, Tammy Holland about two of her collections, When We Wake in the Night and What Does Not Return. And we also discussed a very accomplished poet who spent about 12 years teaching at the University of Montana Creative Writing Program, Madeline DeFries. If you're interested in these books, please contact our sponsors, Isle of Books in Bozeman or at isleofbookshop.com. And Chapter One Books in Hamilton with owners Mara, Marissa, and Sean. You can find their website at chapter1numeralbookstore.com. Join us again next time when we're going to talk to Doug Peacock and discuss the works of William Kittredge. <laughs>